Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. We are um, two or three weeks into a series that uh, we're calling Artisan Faith. Now, Artisan, as you probably know, is uh, kind of a hipster word, so... You'll know that I didn't have anything to do with the choosing of the series uh, title. This is all on Darren um, and other hipsters who are with him, which is like everybody but us old guys on staff. So, you know. Um, at the same time, um, I don't tell him, but I really like the term uh, because it means something like handcrafted designed with intention. Uh, and that really is ultimately what we want to do as we circle back around. We did Ephesians here a few years ago. Uh, and um, this coming back around, um, I've, I've thrown away all my old sermons uh, relative to that because I want to come at this book, which is so central to the life of the church and the definition of the church, especially in a cosmopolitan chaotic uh, community like Ephesus was, like Long Beach is, right? Uh, and, and how it speaks to us, not in our handcrafting our faith, but in how God has shaped and crafted the expression of the church in an urban, cosmopolitan, multicultural, multi-ethnic uh, community like Long Beach is. What does that look like here? It's probably going to look different than it does in some other part of the country, right? And so as we look at this, Darren spent the last couple of three weeks just laying some foundational stuff. Uh, and last week uh, kind of led you into the first half of the paragraph that I'm going to complete as, as he just uh, led us through an understanding of what, what God has done foundationally so that that, that, that crafted faith can start to work itself out. You probably know that the book of Ephesians was not technically written to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is kind of the headquarters of half a dozen churches in that valley region of Asia Minor, including things like uh, 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 Colossae and some of the other, other churches. It was a, a circular letter that traveled around to a, a number of those churches. And so it has a universal appeal, but within that local um, uh, context of the craziness that was Ephesus at the, at the time. And it speaks to the kind of uh, sets of issues that we are, we are dealing with uh, here, here today. So we're going to start the second paragraph. Uh, in, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read the first uh, part of the paragraph that you dealt with last week and then uh, continue on into the text that we'll look at. Verses 3 through 6 is the, is the beginning of that paragraph, and I'm just going to read those. You won't have those available to you, but then we'll pick it up at verse 10. He says this, Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual Blessing in Christ. Everything, Paul is arguing, is available to us in Christ. He chose us 
in him. Before the foundation, before the creation of the world, he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. It is in love then that he predestined us in Christ for adoption and uh, to sonship through, through Christ in accordance with his pleasure, his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. And then this text that we'll read together, uh, follow along with me. So it is in him, in Christ, that we have redemption through his blood. It is in Christ, in him, that we have the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. It is with all wisdom and understanding that he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, namely this, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is almost uh, too much to, to deal with in, in the time that we have, right? I mean, uh, we could be lost, as uh, Darren has mentioned, we could be lost in this initial paragraph for the rest of our lives, and uh, it would be a beneficial, it would be a profitable time. It's like we're doing a flyover of Yosemite on the way to the Grand Canyon, uh, kind of a, a feel for me. Because here we, we get a glimpse into the heart of God. Here we get a glimpse into the very uh, plan uh, of redemption. And we discover that, that whatever it was that we thought was going on, what God is actually up to is greater, grander, and more majestic than we could possibly even begin to imagine. That we are... We are, we are uh, 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 just dipping in to moments of, of wonder uh, as we look at this. So as, as you follow along, it's, it, it begins with this just kind of throwaway line. In him, we have redemption through his blood. In him, we have the forgiveness of sins, grace lavished in abundance on us. And I love the, the way that Paul piles these words onto one another, this this grace is not, um, uh, I don't know if you've, you had this season when you were thinking about this, maybe at some other time, maybe you haven't, but uh, it always struck me as um, strange when grace given to Paul was described as sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. That always felt to me like, enough? Is, is that all? Sufficient? Is that all? Anybody else? No? Okay. So, so, so for, 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 I'm talking to myself then. But as we dig into this, we realize that for God, what is sufficient is lavished richly upon us. We receive it as, as more than if adequate, if you will. It's not just enough. It's exactly what is needed in that moment. It's, it's lavished upon us and it, it enables our redemption. The word that is used here is a rare word outside of the New Testament. Paul uses it uh, pretty exclusively and it has this, this reference back to, and it's used in the Old Testament, Greek translation of the Old Testament, to refer to this liberation from Egypt. And Paul wants, by using this fairly rare word, to just bring to consciousness that, 
that deliverance from slavery that the people of Israel experienced. And he wants us to connect as, as Jew and Gentile alike what God has done for us in Christ. He wants us to connect that to that experience of liberation from, from Egypt where we were held captive even though it wasn't us, it was us. Even where, where we were delivered, even though it wasn't us, it was us. Even though uh, we, we weren't personally there, Paul says, no, you were personally there. And what God has done in Christ, this redemption, this setting free, this liberation, um, let that well up in your hearts from any and all captivity, any and all slavery, any and all uh, 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 mindless labor that seems to produce nothing, any and all of that, he has redeemed us from that. And Paul invites us to consider then that, that liberation that includes just mind-blowing the forgiveness of sins. I think we take this, I, I, I know I do, way too much for granted. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think, and, and, and because we can take it for granted, right? That, that the wonder of Christ's work on the cross, we sit here on a Sunday morning uh, and, and, and let those words blithely roll over our consciousness, without a deep awareness of, of, of the unbelievable reality we have just spoken. He has forgiven us our sins. Those things that separate us from, from him. Those things that separate us from each other. Those self-destructive behaviors that we chose to do in our rebellion against him. He has forgiven us those. Before we have asked, he has forgiven us. Before we have changed our behavior, before we quote unquote ever deserve it, before we could even think to ask it, before you and I were born and did it, he has forgiven us. It is astounding to realize the wonder of what he has done in Christ and invites us onto a level playing field, if you will, invites us not to be digging out from the deficit of our relationship, not to be digging out from the hole of our debt to be paid. He just paid it all and gave us a level ground, a level playing field on which to negotiate, if you will, life with him. By the way, if he had done nothing more than those two phrases, redemption and forgiveness, Today's a good day, boys and girls. Today is a wonderful day. We don't have to talk about anything else. That's enough, right? But God's just getting started. This is the wonder of the passage that he unpacks for us, right? That, that, that would be adequate to, sell, to, 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 to set off all of the worship teams in all of history, get the choirs, send in the brass band, where's USC's marching band? This is worth celebrating, right? That we have this redemption, we have forgiveness, we have restoration of relationship, and God says, no, 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 no. sit down, sit down, sit down. We're, we're just getting started here. Believe it or not, my plan is not just about you being restored to your right mind, fully clothed. My, my, my plan is not just about you 
coming back onto the field after you had benched yourself. My plan is not just about your personal salvation and redemption. We now, you restored, me the restorer, you forgiven, me the forgiver. We now have work to do. We have work to do. And so he invites us to consider in this next phrase this, this, this wisdom and understanding that he has brought us and made known to us the mystery of his will. Um, this word mysterion in Greek is, is, a, is a, um, a, a cleverly chosen word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because typically it speaks in many ways to the dark arts, to the dark sciences. And Paul takes this word and redeems and restores it. And by saying to us, he has made known to us the mystery, the thing that was hidden, the thing that was uncertain, the thing that was unclear. Throughout entirety, you could be dropped down uh, until this moment that he's writing to here, writing, writing here in, 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 in Ephesians, until that moment in time, um, it, you, you, you could have been dropped down 10 minutes earlier, 100 years earlier, uh, three or four centuries earlier, and you would be dropped down right into the middle of that mystery and not have a clue what's actually going on. And some of us still feel that way. Some of us look around at our lives and we say, what is this all about? Where is this going? What is God up to? And in, in, in the catastrophic losses that we have experienced, what is God doing? And we scratch our heads as if we didn't have access to the deep mystery that has been made known to us in wisdom and understanding. And we could be forgiven for this because, again, we take it for granted. We take it for granted. So, so we think through the entirety of the Old Testament, those wonderful reflections and the giving of the way of the Lord and the prayers that emanate out from them. We read one of them this morning, the Psalms and the celebrations and the, and the deep grief that comes in mourning, the deep grief. Uh, I find it fascinating that our, our Christian scriptures include the Old Testament, the first book of which was the book of Job, written centuries before Genesis was finally put down. So this Jobin tradition of disappointment and frustration and loss parallels exactly the story of redemption, the story of God's creation, the story of God's blessing. And these two traditions parallel each other and travel together because life is like that, isn't it? Sometimes it's the promise of the Lord and sometimes it feels like you've been abandoned. And here we are in the middle of the tension created by this promise. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging for bread. Amen, amen. And, well, I have. And actually, it's me. Right? Anybody feel the tension there? And we get dropped down into the middle of that, and we don't know, what is God up to? What is he doing? We are trained in, in, in holding things in tension without having to get clarity on explanation. We're hold, that's called mystery. That's called mystery. And then Paul says, now over here, 
in Jesus, we can begin to understand what that is all about. We are, with all wisdom and understanding, brought in to the mystery of what he's doing in that whole thing. And it is, you, you might be forgiven. I, I, I want to forgive myself and be gracious to myself because when we, we get into mystery, we discover, okay, we get it, but holy cow, this sucker is bigger than I thought it was. This is more than just the simple calculus of redemption. This is more than just the, 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 the wonder, uh, the, the, the nuclear science, the, the, the brain surgery of, 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 of redemption. This is, God is up to something way more, and it's this, to bring all things in heaven and on earth to unity under Christ. All of that disappointment and all of that blessing, all of that rebellion and all of that obedience, all of that outright rejection and all of that sacrifice, all of that and every person who's involved in each and every element of that, including people who have not yet got a clue about their wonder, value, worth, and significance. All of them all of us are being brought together. All of the history of the world is being brought together in a single, focused, unified set. You probably know that Einstein's theory of relativity was one of the attempts to come up with a formula of everything. A simple formula that would describe how the world actually works. And of course, while Einstein's theory of relativity is fascinating and wonderful in many ways, describing the, the wonder of how mass relates to energy, um, it's inadequate because it misses the personal dimension of an artisan faith a faith in which God didn't just start creation off and let it go, but a faith in which God occupies the space between the molecules, in which God holds it all together in his mind and in his heart, in which, as Paul says, it is in him that we live and move and have our very existence in which Paul later on will say here and then in the Colossians, if he stops thinking of us, we cease to be. Oh. This is where we need the guardrails as we overlook the Grand Canyon of mystery. We've been brought into it. We see it. Anybody understand it? No, 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 because you're in it. You're, you're not a dispassionate, objective observer of mystery. You are right in the God-blessed center of it. As wonder explodes all around you for the purposes of his glory. And, and, it's, and, and it, becomes, it becomes clear, God's not just interested in your salvation. He's interested in redeeming Pluto, too and every star, and every solar system, 
and every tiny atom. All of it. Now, why would it need to be redeemed? Why would it need to be brought back? Why would it need to be realigned and unified again? And the answer is because we screwed up. We screwed up. Because if you come into Genesis chapter 1, what's God's declaration at the end of each creative day? It's good. This sucker will work. Because that's what the word means. Not sucker, the, the good part. The, he, he probably didn't say that. That's, that's kind of a, a paraphrased translation from the original Right. But, but, but that word good there is not a, a category of, 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 of morality, good versus evil. It's a description of function. Same Hebrew word is translated beauty. When God looks at his creation, he says beauty. When he looks at his creation, he says beauty, good. This is operational. This will work. This form and this, the function for which I have created it is ideally suited. And then he blesses it and releases that good creation, right? With capacity for its future, kind after kind, reproduction and the whole, the whole series of, of, of perpetuation. This is good. This is so, so good. Very good, right? And then in Genesis chapter 3, we chose, instead of be part of the goodness of God, which required dependent alignment with him, we chose to go off on our own and manage our role as the image of God without dependence on him. Anybody f feel the connection there? It's like, remember the illustration uh, that I used here a few months ago of the kite string? Anybody remember that? Nobody remembers that. Why do I even bother talking? Anyway, <laughs> but I, th I think it's helpful here in this context, right? What is it that enables a kite to fly freely? It's the string that anchors it to the, to the earth, right? It's that tension, that tension, if you will, of dependence, that tension of dependent, if you will, obedience that enables the, the, the kite to have just enough tension to harness the winds that blow and fly freely. And we decided in Genesis chapter 3 that we wanted to try freedom. And so we cut the string of our dependence, marked now by our disobedience to God's single command. And what happens to a kite in which the string has been cut? It becomes trash blowing in the wind. And because we were the image of God, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, Darren referred to here a couple of weeks ago, because we were the image of God, charged by God to represent him in the care of this planet, when we chose to sever our connection with him, the rest of the planet learned very quickly it could no longer cooperate with us in our role. We had lost our place, and so the, it began to fail from the middle. It began to disintegrate it began to fall apart. Does that make sense? And it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it falls apart at the most fragile of relationships, the relationships between person and person, the relationships between persons and God, the relationships between persons and themselves. 
and that is called sin. Those fragmented relationships, those, those disintegration relationships that now turn brother on brother and sister on sister and mother and father on children and children on mother and father and, and person on stranger and, 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 and resident on alien, all of those disconnections, disintegration, a trace right back to that kite string that we cut. If we're not going to be dependent on God, we are on our own and our fear and insecurity causes us to build our Charlie Brown snow forts and we pelt all comers with snowballs, hoping against hope that we will survive against the onslaught of our brothers and sisters. And we begin to let tribal identity assert itself. We begin to let all kinds of, because we have lost the anchor of our identity in God, right? We're going to find our identity in something else. And so we begin to advertise on Craigslist for ways to be identified. And we find it in, in the car we drive. We find it in the job we have. We find it in the person to whom we're married. We find it in our, in our, in our um, attraction. We find identity in, 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 in all kinds of things. And please notice, every single one of these things is supposed to be expressions of identity, not means towards it. it we've got it backwards. We've got... We've, Darren's not here, so I'm going to use my button illustration. We have the, 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 the first button in the second hole. Right? Remember? And the result is we're living as well as we possibly can and wonder why we still look like jerks, look like idiots who's, who dress themselves. It's because we did. And we're not good at it. We're built for dependent relationship. And when we sever the string of that, we lose track of ourselves. We lose track of our brothers and sisters. And now our tribal identity, our usness, allows us to push back the thems in all kinds of ways, all kinds of ways. We build our own versions of security with our guarded fortresses of lives and wonder why God weeps at the disintegration of his world which he had said was good. It's not good. It's not good. And so his plan is to redeem and restore and unify it, pull it all back, reintegrate it once more. Now, his plan does not involve his use of force, which is how we would probably go about it. In fact, almost every single time we try and work unity, how do we do it? We try and force conformity and then wonder why it falls apart at the center. It's the artificial conformity of, of the uniform. It's, it's the artificial conformity of, 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 of uh, the tribe. 
in which competition has replaced cooperation. Right? And it's not, please notice with me, it's not that it doesn't work at some fundamental level. Competition can produce outcomes, right? But we're not built for competitiveness relative to one another. We are built for cooperation with one another. So when we try and force conformity, when we try and use the big stick to make everybody like us, it will not take very long before we discover that our disunity, our disintegration is not about externals, it's about internals. We are broken at the core and so Cain slays Abel. All throughout history, that is what has been going on. And God's strategy is to love us back to life again. In fact, to love us to death. Why? Because God knows the most powerful force in the universe, by the way, is love. What is this universe? What is it? If Genesis chapter 1 is to be believed, and it is, this universe is nothing more nor less than a word of God. A spoken word of God. We discover that word has a first name. When he came and dwelt among us, took on flesh, and moved into our neighborhoods. But before he was that incarnate word, he was the spoken word of God who, John tells us, is love. So this universe that we delight in and ought to, this universe that is expanding at a rate faster than we can possibly imagine, 186,282 miles per second outward, this universe is an expanding reality of the spoken word of God who is love. What else can he do but love us to life again? He's trusting love as the most powerful force in the universe to bring us back into alignment, to bring us back into uh, the trajectory. Uh, and he invites us to be part of the mystery. He invites us to be part of the mystery of the restoration of all things by love. Because if love doesn't work, God has no plan B. That's why I'm convinced, friends, as hard as this is for us to think of it, there has to be a place called hell. There has to be a place who will not allow, for people who will not allow God to love them. As painful as that is, there is no other way of redemption. And if you will not, if we will not participate in the reality, and please notice, some of you are already starting to figure this out. Because what does that mean about the guy sitting next to you? That your differences with this person, political, financial, whatever they are, pale in comparison to the heartbeat just under the skin that is parallel and set by the drummer of heaven. I 
love you. Love yourself. And then love your neighbor as you love yourself. You see the strategy? Really simple. Not easy. Because that says the differences we have, whatever they are, are part of the person we love. And this, this, as you know, we've talked about this before. This is why at the Garden we don't take political stances. We just don't. Because I want people who voted blue and people who voted, um, um, what's the other color? Red. And people who voted green and people who voted chartreuse. I want them to feel like they belong here. Because if we can't do this here in the church, what hope in the world is there? We're God's guerrilla troops parachuted behind enemy lines to redeem the world through love. And if we make our fellowship contingent on whether you voted the same way I did in the last election, the game's over. The game's over. We might as well just quit and go home. And so Paul invites us to be participants in the deep mystery of God's plan to save the world. And here's the question for us gardeners. Are you in? Are you in? Because it's going to cost you every damn thing you've got. Why? Because he wants to replace them with blessed things. That's why. That's why. That's the strategy. That's the strategy. And we're invited into this mystery uh, at, at, at some, some critical level of deep wondering. So consider with me, if you would, please, as we draw to conclusion. Uh, what does it look like for you, first of all, to give thanks for your redemption, to give thanks for your forgiveness of sins personally, but then realize it applies to everybody around you, including the guy who hurt you yesterday, who now you have to act in forgiveness towards as well. That's what love does, doesn't it? It draws us into unity. We have, I, I get boundaries. I get the necessity of not walking into the buzzsaw of toxic relations. I get all that. I get all that. We're not trying to fix them. We're trying to be who God's called us to be. I want to become so framed by love that I can absorb the pain of other persons without loss to myself. If I follow someone who said to me, this is my body broken for you, guess what's likely to happen to us? You understand now why it was so hard for Jews and Gentiles to get along until Paul said, no, 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 no. It's not about being Jews and Gentiles. In Christ, there are no Jews and Gentiles. We are brought together in unity. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.